the year is 33 common era emperor tiberius is on the throne in rome and things aren't looking too good for the empire about a year before the firm of Sutes and son of alexandria lost three richly laden spice ships on the red sea in a hurricane their ventures in the Ethiopian caravan trade were also unprofitable, ostrich feathers and ivory having lately fallen in value. It soon began to be rumoured that they might be obliged to suspend. A little later, the well-known Purple House of Malchus and Company, centred at Tyre but with factories at Antioch and Ephesus, suddenly became bankrupt. A strike among their Phoenician workmen and the embezzlements of a trusted freedman manager being the direct causes of the disaster. <clears throat> Presently, it became evident that the great Roman banking house of Quintus Maximus and Lucius Vibo had loaned largely to both Sirtes and Malchus. The depositors, fearing for their money, commenced to run on the bank, and distrust spread because men, experienced on the Via Sacra at the first century uh, Wall Street, said that the still larger house of the brothers Petius was also involved with Maximus and Vibo. The Petii were therefore left with inadequate resources. Maximus and Vibo closed their doors first, but that same afternoon the Petii did likewise. Grave rumours obtained that, owing to the interlacing of credits, many other banks were affected. To find capital to buy land, it was necessary for them, the senators, to call in their private loans and deposits at the bankers. Publius Spinter, a wealthy nobleman, particularly was obliged to notify Balbus and Olius, his bankers, that they must find the 30 million sesterces he had deposited with them two years before. Two days later, Balbus and Olius had closed their doors and their bankruptcy was being entered before the praetor. End quote. That's quite a catalogue of disasters, and it's an illustration of the interconnectedness of the ancient world in the heyday of the Roman Empire. So today we're heading back to Imperial Rome, and a crisis that has some parallels with more modern meltdowns. It is the year 33 of the Common Era, or AD, if you prefer, the year a Jewish troublemaker and agitator named Jesus Christ ended his days on a cross, well, for a few days anyway, if you believe the Bible, and the Roman Empire's financial system seized up. And to add spice to the mix of ancient and modern Going back to the theme of modern similarities, we have an episode of fake news that has raced around the world for more than a century. And the truth is still putting its boots on. But we'll come back to that. First, let's have a look at how the ancient, specifically the Roman, economy was organised and what was fueling it. Like all settled societies in the ancient world, Rome's was an agrarian economy, with land as the ultimate good, unlike the Aztecs, say, who practiced a sort of primitive agricultural communism. Private property was the basis of the Roman world, 
And as we see in the modern world, where there is private property, that private property tends to accumulate in the hands of fewer and fewer individuals, usually until one of the great levelers, the horseman of the apocalypse, rides in. I'm talking about war, plague, famine or conquest. The result was that there were some very rich people in the Roman world who wanted opportunities to invest their money and were probably looking for land to buy. As an agrarian economy, the Romans got lucky between about 200 BCE and 150-180 Common Era. During that time, the Republic came to an end and after a series of brutal civil wars, was replaced by the Empire. This was a meteorological period now known as the Roman Climate Optimum, or RCO. The RCO was a period of warm, wet and stable climate across the Mediterranean. The importance of a kinder climate in this period is one of the themes of Kyle Harper's excellent book, the fate of Rome. The RCO allowed previously unused land to be brought into cultivation, supporting in turn a larger population. Trade routes opened up and stabilised, allowing the Romans to shift vast quantities of commodities across what were, for the time, huge distances and turned Egypt into the breadbasket of the empire, thanks to the Nile's flooding. The early Roman imperial economy was already international, and was becoming more so, as be the outlying areas became more integrated with the core. It included most of the Mediterranean littoral, and large parts of Europe, although not yet the British Isles, not in 33. After the disaster at the Teutoburg Forest in 9 CE, when three Roman legions and their auxiliaries were ambushed and wiped out by German tribesmen, by some estimates as many as 20,000 people lost their lives, Emperor Augustus decreed that the boundary of the, the empire would be the River Rhine. And while there was regional diversity, there was a single political system, based on the empire and the emperor, and integrated markets. There was also a single currency, at the base of which was the silver denarius. A denarius was worth four sesterces, and 25 denarii made up a gold aureus. So, in this system, the value of each coin depended on its relation to the others. Meanwhile, the amount of metal that could be used as money and made available for investment or consumption or hoarding depended on the availability of each metal. And this was volatile. Opening a new gold or silver mine, say, could throw things out of kilter quite easily, which is a feature of specie-based systems right through history. That, of course, opens up a major role for credit, so that everybody ends up owing something to practically everyone else. In turn, that connects everyone to everybody else. So, if Tom gets into difficulties, Dick does too, and stands a good chance of taking Harry down with him. 
And that's what happened in 33 CE, as the boom soured, such as it was, and turned to bust. According to Alan Bowman, an Oxford University academic, the Roman economy was monetized, even in rural areas, with a sophisticated banking system that could take deposits and operate a credit system. However, Roman banks didn't actually make loans. That was pretty much largely the job of rich people. Private credit substituted for loans going through a bank. Some historians argue that lending money took place not for investment purposes, to grow the pie, as it were, but rather to roll over existing debts or to buy land. This was certainly the case, at least in part. However, credit does seem to have been extended to oil the wheels of business. It was a pretty sophisticated arrangement, relying on enforceable property rights and a functioning legal arrangement. As an example, Bowman mentions a document showing a credit extended at Puteoli, modern-day Pozzuoli, near Naples, secured against goods stored across the Mediterranean in Alexandria. In The Fate of Rome, Kyle Harper tells us of a, quote, fragmentary papyrus preserving a contract between a commercial financier in Alexandria and a trader working the route from Egypt to Muziris in India, end quote. On its return voyage, the ship, apparently called the Hermapolon, carried a cargo of ivory, nard, 544 tons of pepper, and other precious goods, worth in all 7 million sesterces. According to Harper, that sum would have bought 23,000 tons of wheat, or 200 square kilometres of Egyptian land. Leaving aside ancient exchange rates, that was, in any case, a lot of money. Nard, by the way, is made from a plant that grows in the Himalayas at an altitude of between 3,000 and 5,000 metres. And it was used as a perfume in sacrifices and as a flavouring in Roman food. So that's the backdrop now let's turn to the events. The Emperor Tiberius was on the throne when a crisis struck in 33 CE. Tiberius was a successful general who had proven himself under his predecessor and his father by adoption, Augustus, the first emperor. Tiberius was in his mid-fifties when he came to power in the year 14, and it seems was one of those crusty old conservatives that the Roman upper classes produced quite regularly. He hadn't really wanted to become emperor and had ended up on the throne because a combination of war, bad luck and perhaps murder too, had deprived Augustus of alternative successors. The machinations of his mother Livia also had a lot to do with him gaining his position, probably. We really don't know. And Livia got uh, blamed for practically everything. That was a sort of a Roman trope. However, by 33 CE, Tiberius had withdrawn from public life, and indeed from Rome itself, and had gone to live on the island of Capri. 
A word of warning now. now the sources, mainly Suetonius and Tacitus, really don't like Tiberius. In fact, they paint him as utterly depraved, drinking maniacally and giving in to the worst sexual vices imaginable. Ah, yes, uh, and acting like a cruel tyrant, quite happy to murder all and sundry if the mood so took him. Basically, best practice for a Roman emperor. Here's Suetonius, quote, On retiring to Capri, he devised a pleasance for his secret orgies. Teams of wantons of both sexes, selected as experts in deviant intercourse, and dubbed analysts, copulated before him in triple unions to excite his flagging passions. Its bedrooms were furnished with the most salacious paintings and sculptures, as well as with an erotic library, in case a performer should need an illustration of what was required. Then, in Capri's woods and groves, he arranged a number of nooks of venery, where boys and girls got up as pans and nymphs, solicited outside babours and grottos. People openly called this Caprinium, the old goat's garden, punning on the island's name. He acquired a reputation for still grosser depravities that one can hardly bear to tell or be told, let alone believe. For example, he trained little boys, whom he termed tiddlers, to crawl between his thighs when he went swimming and tease him with their licks and nibbles and unweaned babies he would put to his organ as though to the breast, being by both nature and age rather fond of this form of satisfaction. Left a painting of Parhasius's depicting Atalanta pleasuring Meliago with her lips, on condition that if the theme displeased him, he was to have a million sesterces instead. He chose to keep it, and actually hung it in his bedroom, the story is also told that once, at a sacrifice, attracted by the acolyte's beauty, he lost control of himself and, hardly waiting for the ceremony to end, rushed him off and debauched him and his brother, the flute player, too. And subsequently, when they complained of the assault, he had their legs broken. End quote. So Tiberius is unlikely to have been best pleased when he was called away from his cavorting with the youngsters by the news that a financial crisis had broken out in Rome and the Senate had no clue what to do about it. As is common with financial crises, politics had a lot to do with the actual meltdown. The backdrop to the crisis of 33 is the relationship between Emperor Tiberius and Sejanus, who was prefect and the head of the Praetorian Guard. Siberius had left Sejanus to run the empire in his absence, but Sejanus, far from being a loyal stand-in for the emperor, harboured ambitions of his own. He wanted to inherit the empire. That involved bumping off a large number of people with better claims on the throne than his own. Starting in 23 CE with the poisoning of Drusus, Tiberius's son, this was a task he carried out basically by accusing them of treason and having them executed. By 31 CE, 
Sejanus had reached the pinnacle of power. He was co-consul with Tiberius that year, and that was an honour the emperor reserved for his heirs. His downfall was swift, sudden and dramatic. In October of 31, he was summoned to the Senate, where, without warning, a letter from Tiberius, still on vacation in Capri, was read out, demanding his arrest. He was arrested and summarily executed. Chaos ensued, as did a witch hunt that wiped out Sejanus's family, along with many of his friends and followers. The exact extent of the body count isn't clear, but there are reasons to think some of the sources may have exaggerated the repression. However, it seems reasonable to think a fair bit of corruption was exposed and punished, with both land seizures and executions. A law passed around 70 years earlier under Julius Caesar, but which was still on the books, although no longer applied, was revived and began causing chaos. The exact requirements of the law aren't totally clear. Well, they're not clear at all, to be honest. But it seems to have required those wanting to lend at interest to invest a portion of their capital in land in Italy. The idea behind the law may have been to prevent capital flight, but no one really knows. Indeed, no one is entirely certain precisely which law was invoked. This is Tacitus. Quote, but now the praetor Gracchus, who presided over this court, influenced by the multitude of those upon whom the penalties of the law would be visited, laid the matter before the Senate, and the Senate in great apprehension, for hardly anyone was free from fault in the matter, begged the prince for indulgence, and by his consent a year and a half were allowed, within which time each person should adjust his business relations in accordance with the requirements of the law. From this there resulted a stringency in the money market, all debts being called in at the same time and great amounts of cash being locked up in the treasury by reason of the number of condemnations and confiscations. So, translating, it seems that lenders were being dragged into court to answer charges under the law, and the number of cases was such that the praetor decided to refer the matter to the Senate, having no idea what to do. The Senate passed the matter up to Tiberius, and the old goat of Capri gave everyone 18 months to get their affairs into line with the law. The Senate, by the way, also decreed that two-thirds of capital should be invested in Italian land. The result was that all the lenders called in their loans at the same time, leading to a shortage of money and forced sales of assets as borrowers tried to raise cash that wasn't available. The result of that was that land prices started to fall. Those with cash decided that the estate they were eyeing was cheap today, but likely to be cheaper tomorrow. So they sat on their hands, sat on their cash and waited. This was deflation big time. Moreover, landowners were reluctant to sell their estates 
Rather, they preferred to sell bits of their estates to limit their damage, but that wasn't what potential buyers wanted. They were looking for whole estates, and so prices fell and continued to fall. It's doubtful whether Tiberius was familiar with economic theory in any meaningful way, but he wasn't stupid. Presumably taking a break from his debauchery and indulgences, he must have realised that a credit crunch was underway. And the cure for a credit crunch is for the government to step in and make credit available. So that's what he did. The emperor opened the imperial coffers and 100 million sesterces were made available to be lent interest-free for three years. Collateral was set at land worth twice the value of the loans. A banking commission of five senators was set up to distribute the cash and the crisis subsided. It was pretty much what the 19th century economist Walter Bagot would have prescribed almost two millennia later. Lend generously against good collateral. Bagot would have made the rescue loans at a penalty rate, but you can't have everything. So what was going on here? Well, the politics around the demise of Sianus may have been the immediate spark for the crisis. What were its deeper structural causes? And here we have to wind the clock back more than six decades to the end of the civil war between Mark Antony and Cleopatra on one side, and the victorious Augustus, formerly Octavian, on the other. Bear in mind that the difference between the imperial treasury and the emperor's own coffers is pretty blurred at this point in history. When he took power, Augustus, who famously boasted that he found Rome a city of bricks and left it a city of marble, that's a remark that may be a legend, by the way, Augustus opened the spending floodgates. Having looted Egypt, he returned to Rome, clutching Cleopatra's stash, which allowed him to pay off his veterans and set about bribing, yeah, let's call a spade a spade, bribing the populace. And here's the boom. There were handouts to the Romans. He repaired the roads in Italy and banished potholes from the streets of the capital. He restored temples and built new ones. He built aqueducts, baths, forums, you name it. Augustus lavished the cash on it. Between 30 BCE, when he emerged victorious from the civil wars, and 27 BCE, when he established his regime, Frank Tenney, an American classicist, estimates that Augustus's outgoings were double the state's annual budget. The building boom lasted for about the first 20 years of Augustus's reign. Thereafter, it slowed and then dropped precipitously under Tiberius, who just wasn't interested in splashing out on Rome, or indeed on anything much, perhaps apart from debaucheries and booze. According to a paper by academics Thornton and Thornton, Augustus left Tiberius about a hundred million sesterces, which they say was a fairly modest amount for an emperor. By contrast, in 37 CE, Tiberius left his successor, that other good-time debauchery guy Caligula, 
more than 2.7 billion stesoshis in the privy purse, meaning that Tiberius ran an annual surplus of more than 110 million sesterces a year throughout his reign, without allowing for the inward rush of cash following the fall of Sejanus. Tiberius, in effect, had been sucking money out of the economy right through his reign, and this was austerity writ large. In fact, the first thing that Caligula did as soon as he got his backside onto the throne was to start spending the money that Tiberius had left him. As a result, at least at the outset, he was racking up popularity with the people. He started a couple of aqueducts, and then Claudius, Caligula's successor, also learned the lesson and splashed the cash when soldiers dragged him out from behind the curtain and seated him on the departed Caligula's throne. Claudius began building the harbour at Ostia and started draining the Fusine lakes, projects that Julius Caesar had considered but never got around to. To be fair, draining the Fusine lake didn't actually happen until the 19th century and is a whole other story. Tiberius's tight-fistedness coincided with another process influencing the Roman economy. The money supply was anyway getting tighter. The military situation in the provinces had stabilised, and wealthy Romans were able to invest in land outside of Italy. That meant that precious metal was flowing outward, and, since it was being used to buy land rather than for more immediately productive purposes, there was no dividend inflow in return. The empire had stopped expanding for the time being, so plunder, like the loot that Augustus brought back from Egypt, was scarce. The aristocracy also liked to buy imported luxuries such as nard and ivory, and that's more silver headed away from Rome. On top of that, the state's biggest single expense was for the wages of the troops. And where were most of the legions? They were stationed at the frontier, guarding the empire from potential marauders. The money the soldiers received was then spent at the frontier, creating another channel draining funds from the centre to the edge of the empire. However, a key issue seems to have been the construction boom, which had caused massive manpower needs during the first part of Augustus's reign, but which was followed by nothing much for the next 40 years or thereabouts. Thornton and Thornton argue that the effects of the slowdown in activity were slow to work through to the citizenry because of the slave economy. About a third of the populace was enslaved at the time, and their owners would have been the first to feel the effects of the end of the construction boom. However, they point out that there had been riots prior to 33 CE because of the price of grain. And there is a coda to the bust. Tacitus tells us that one Sextus Marius, a mine owner, a friend of the emperor, and supposedly the wealthiest man in the empire, was accused of incest with his beautiful daughter. He was tried, found guilty, and then executed by being thrown from the Tarpeian rock. Tiberius then confiscated his mines, and either took the daughter to go and be depraved with her himself, or he had her executed too. 
Cassius Dio has a slightly different version in which Sextus sent his daughter away to avoid Tiberius's lust, was accused of incest, and they were both killed. Sadly, according to Edward Champlin, Emeritus Professor of Classics at Princeton University, the sources and their later readers have probably mixed up a folktale, the father saving a beautiful daughter from being ravished by a tyrant, with the treason trials that took place following the fall of Sejanus, the man Tiberius left to run the government after he retreated to Capri. Sejanus, who was, as you will recall, the prefect of the Praetorian Guard, was suddenly arrested and executed in 31 CE, the year of his consulship, and his body was dumped on the Gemonian stairs to be eaten by dogs and foxes, an ignominious fate. We actually don't know for certain why he was killed, and historians still debate whether he really planned to usurp Tiberius. And I hear you ask, what about Ceuthes and son of Alexandria? What about Malchus and company of Tyre? And the brothers Piteus, Balbus Olius, and all the rest? Well, these names come from a book called The History of Business Depressions, published in 1922 by one Otto C. Leitner, which was cited by, and I assume among others, Business Insider, uh, which about 10 years ago was seeking to draw a parallel between the US's troubled asset relief program, TARP, put in place following the 2008 crisis, and Tiberius's 100 million sesterces. Leitner in turn lifted the names from a book called by William Stearns Davis called The Influence of Wealth in Imperial Rome, and it was published in 1910. This was reviewed in the Classical Weekly by George N. Alcott, who praised it for its scholarship, but pointed out that the chain of events that I read out at the top had been invented by Professor Davis to illustrate just how interconnected the Roman world was. He really ought to have stated clearly that he'd made them up, Alcott admonishes him. Quote, if Professor Davis's book reaches a second edition, it is to be hoped, therefore, that he will see fit to eliminate the initial chapter, for the rest of the work is really good and in parts excellent. End quote. Well, that's it for this time. Tune in again for the next dive into excess leverage dodgy finance and the upsets they provoke. Rate and review the show on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google or wherever else you get your podcasts and subscribe to be sure you never miss an episode. Many thanks to guitar maestro Clive Carroll whose piece all this time supplies the music for the story and Thank you for listening. See you soon. Thank you again.